From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Well, ahoy there, my hearties, and a warm welcome back on board my pirate ship, the Reef Gauche, and for a very special Christmas edition of The Captain's Table. As regular listeners will know, for the last couple of years, I've recorded the show in front of a live audience held in the sumptuous offices of the Howden Group. But not so today. To close what has been a magnificent 2023 for the Are You Not Entertained podcast, we thought we should look closer to home for our next guest. And I've been looking forward to welcome this chap onto the show for quite some time. A man who, really for the last four or five years, has been cajoling the international sports industry to take a long, hard look at itself. A man who is fierce in his views and not scared to take a backward step in challenging those in power. He's Marmite. You love him or you don't. But for some, he is as terrifying as the most dastardly pirate of them all, Captain Blackbeard. I love him. So Roger Mitchell joins me on the show today. He is, as you may have guessed from the accent, a proud Ouija, born in Paisley, that came from Italian and Irish stock. And Roger was educated in his hometown, where he qualified as a chartered accountant. His first work gig was in Bologna, with PricewaterhouseCoopers, and then went to James Cable, which became HSBC in London in 1988, before moving back to Italy. But critically, in 1988, he became the CEO of the Scottish Premier League, where he stayed for about three or four years, trying really hard to introduce a new TV media model into that league, a model that was years ahead of its time. He then moved back to Italy, settling in Lake Como in 2006, and has now focused on both early-stage sports set companies and executive training, and creating the Are You Not Entertained podcast with two other Muppets. He has also just written his first book, Sports Perfect Storm, which I cannot wait to get my hands on as it gets released this Christmas. I can hear his elfin footsteps on the gangplank right now, so let's welcome him to the captain's table. Roger Mitchell, welcome on board the Reeve Ghost. God, have I been longing to say those words. Pull up a chair and make yourself at home. Love to. Uh, who would have thought after all these years I would actually <laughs> get on what is uh, actually a very plush, a plush ship. I, I thought it would be a bit... Um, cranky and everything like that but you've done it up well i should have <laughs> oh, known well you know <laughs> pharaoh and ball paint what can i say now just be careful of all of the pets the dogs the cat the parrot you know you know all of that yeah uh, and the crew um they may get in your way first things first rog as always every guest who comes aboard the reef gauche um i need and have to get you a drink do i get you a whiskey a lovely chianti or do i get away from the cultural stereotypes of your own existence 
Well, I, um, I actually quite like a Cuba Libre, which is, you know, just really rum and coke in plain man's English. And of course, you know, the, 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 the rum would be the one from yourself. Uh, so that if you could yeah. get me that, that would be great, Giles. Well, we have a lot of that. Pirate ships are well stocked. The, the coke, obviously, we have to get back into the 20th, 20th century, but we'll get there. So enough of this absolute tosh, Rog. We've talked about the Reeve Gosha a lot. You couldn't quite believe that I was going to create this all these years ago, but we kept going. Amazing um, guests over you. the years. Amazing guests. Just fantastic. No, it's just gone up a notch. This is going to be fun. Where we talk a lot on our shows and, and we put other people largely in the spotlight. And you are probably our grand inquisitor in terms of how you, you, you love to maybe probe, I guess is the word, and find out what people are really thinking. Now it's my turn and I come with the full support of Grant, who has got probably some questions as well. But a lot of the fire in your belly and a lot of the things, I think often a sense of injustice that you have as a person must come from, as everything does from childhood. Tell us a little bit about where you were brought up and your parents. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the reason for what you're suggesting. Um, I was brought up in Paisley. Um, my, my mother came from an Italian immigrant family. Uh, my father had quite a lot of links to Ireland on his side. So we, we were that kind of family. And one of the things I would say is that my, my father was a, a very intelligent man, probably a born engineer. And for various reasons, I wouldn't bore everybody with, he didn't get a chance. Some of it's to do with the way Scotland was in those days and how they looked at Irish immigrant families and everything like that. Another reason was he had to leave school early because his father had died and he needed to bring money into the house. My mother became a school teacher at secondary school of, of, of languages so we were, I would say, an upper working class family or lower middle class. My father, when he didn't become an engineer, worked actually on the car lines in Linwood for Chrysler. And, you know, one of the things that I think is maybe linked to what you're suggesting is that I saw from him how somebody goes through life really well, really with a lot of drive and dignity and realizing that he's doing something well below his talents and, you know, I, I always admired him for that. And, you know, if there is an element of sense of unfairness, maybe there's something in there, I don't know, you would need somebody brighter than me. Did he encourage you to be the best you could be? Was he always very, very certain that he could get his boy to where he wanted to, to see you, what he could see the talent in you? Not really. You know, like, I wouldn't say he was one of these what's called hel helicopter parents and you know you're going to do this you're going to do that you know you, I'm going to live my life vicariously through you I never felt any of that pressure I think one of the things I would say is that my home was relatively free of stress and and anguish and challenges you know I you know we weren't rich but you know I, I never felt I was missing for anything and you know I went to state school and you know life was fine and then it was always pretty clear I was going to go to university and then from university, you know, the life takes you there. But, you know, my parents were, I think it's, it's what we try to continue ourselves is, you know, you just create a, a good home environment where, you know, everybody, you know, loves each other. And then what will be, will be. And that's what I felt. Well, and, and that comes through. I, I know you and I know your family, the, the sense of 
what family means to you, I know it is everything. Tell me, were you a sporting child, either as a, a fan or a, a player of sport? What, when did that happen for you? It must have happened at some point. You love your football, I know that. But where did all that come from? Very, very early. I mean, it's really, really classically Scottish, certainly um, the west of Scotland. You know, there's no real choice. Everybody is playing football in the street in the 70s. Everybody. And, you know, Scottish football players were, you know, coming out of a, a conveyor belt line. Most people were good. So, you know, I can remember night after night in the Scottish summers where it didn't get dark until 11 o'clock and you were basically playing six hours in the street, you know, often with a tennis ball in between cars, just really honing your ball skills and, you know, that, so everybody became a fairly decent footballer. And Rog, who were your hero? Who was your hero? Who did you want to be when you were, you were playing in the park? Who, who did you, you associate well, with well, best? Well, you know, again, everything's context. When I was growing up, you know, Celtic were one of the very, very best teams in Europe. You know, reached two European Cup finals, another couple of semi-finals. You know, we had a, a solid, solid team. I was slightly young for, you know, the total adoration of Jimmy Johnson, who was the kind of star of that 1967 to 72 team. So the next one coming along was Kenny Dalglish, which he would have been the main guy until he left for Liverpool around 76 or 77. But much more than individuals, it was always, you know, those hoops. And, and you know, Celtic, we, we were very much in love with that whole team. Uh, it re represented something much more than a football team. It represented... The, the the communities and you have to say these things even though it sounds a little bit silly now represented the catholic community in in scotland kind of like bohemian underdog community and and having that team go out beyond scotland and go into europe and dominate well was real thing of pride so our posters on the wall were much more of the team than individual players i think that would be fair to say giles was there, I mean, you talked about Dalgleish. Was he a, an absolute hero? Who was on the bedroom? Did you have posters on the bedroom wall? Was there someone that you absolutely just completely idolised? Or was it more, as you say, just the sense of the team and what they were doing that captured your heart? I, I, I don't think I've ever been anybody that's, oh my God, this is my hero. This is the person that I want to be. This is my inspiration. Certainly not in those age. I, I don't remember having posters of players on my wall. I had a couple of music stars, but but I do remember having pictures of the Celtic squad team, you know, lined up, or, you know, sitting there in that classic way. I do remember that. Do, do you remember your first live ever sports, probably football match that you ever went to? Do you ever, do you remember that first I do. time when you... I do. You know, my father, my father wasn't really a football guy. He was more a golfer. And my mother was an Italian mother. So there wasn't a great desire from my parents to see me going to football games. Certainly not in those years that were a little bit fruity, you know, as the, the troubles in Northern Ireland kicked off and everything like that. So I remember one time, I don't know what age it would have been, maybe seven, eight, something like that. And, you know, we were up in the centre of Glasgow and my mum was doing some shopping and my dad just said, look, why don't we just go along to, to Celtic Park, which is, you know, a little bit east of the centre. And we went up there and you could just kind of like pay in the way in. And I remember seeing the, you know, the stadium for the first time, the green grass, the amazing noise that came from the terraces. And then, you know, Jimmy Johnston, I, I remember that very much because, he you know, played in the wing. So he was on my side of the stadium when, when I went there and, I, I remember that very clearly, that a, a real idea that seeing football live was, was something very, very different. That remained with me. 
Wonderful. And as you've now gone through your life, where is your favourite sporting stadium to go as a fan? Is it still Celtic Park or is it? have you moved on? Where, where do you love, any, of any sport, what's your favourite sporting stadium that you've been lucky enough to be, to, be at? Uh, you know, I was I was thinking about this because, you know, obviously you love Celtic, but, you know, this football stadium in the old days, they weren't really super nice places. There was, you know, it wasn't all seated. You know, there was a bit of a crush. There were people pissing down your leg and things like that. It, it was it was pretty rough and ready. It's, you know, you can you always balance that is that when the, the stadium's rocking and there's an atmosphere, you get a buzz out of that. But it's great to go to these places. But, you know, I don't have this amazing sense, oh, my God, this is my spiritual home. You know, I remember when I went to Lords the first time, I really thought that was quite special. Wimbledon, I uh, thought that was quite special. But as I've got older, you know, I, I, I've less and less interested in that whole, you know, big event or let's be at the occasion thing. I really quite enjoy watching sport in my in my living room. I guess that's a sign of age. It's interesting you say that about would you, if you had the choice of watching now in a stadium, in a bar with mates or just at home, I think you may have just answered it. Would you prefer to watch a, a, a game of football at home with a bottle of red? Well, yes, I think it's more the company for me. So those three examples, there's watching in a bar, a sports bar, a pub. I've never liked that because you can't hear the commentary. It's almost a kind of like... A kind of like one step removed experience. A stadium's always great. You always get a buzz, but I think I feel it wears off. So, like the first ten minutes when the the crowd's really up for it is great, and then you know the game's going on, and then you start thinking about leaving early to avoid the traffic, and then you start thinking, "Shit, I'm in the traffic. I wish I was home now." Uh, but the main thing, Giles, is this: I like to watch sport with people that know. I like to, you know, have four or five people around me that I believe are competent in whichever sport I'm watching at that time. And there's no noise around. And I could just say to them, or they can say to me, how have you seen this game? Do you think he or she's on it today? And you have that very, very restricted little group. And if that's in a nice, you know, living room and you're you're having a nice drink or something, then I find that very, very pleasant. And Rog, those of us who have the privilege of knowing you know that you're not nearly as frightening as you can come over. You're, you're actually a great softie. Have you ever cried watching sport? Has it ever moved you to that level where your tears have just welled up? A couple of times. A couple of times. I remember, uh, and this is in the book, I was on um, Lake Geneva uh, listening to the radio uh, in 1998 when and Celtic stopped the Rangers getting 10 in a row on the last day of the season. And that was just out of relief. That was just crying out relief. Going forward now, what I find myself doing is I am quite easily moved when I see the protagonists themselves moved. You know, I'll, get, I'll give you an, an example. When Federer is sitting there and he's beside Nadal and he's retired and he reaches his hand out to Nadal and Nadal grabs it and they're both, I found that incredibly emotional and even is a little bit emotional now, you know, telling you about it. Those kind of things there where you're seeing often related to, you know, the end of something. Totti's retirement was another one. The end of something where the great hero, the great protagonist has got to come to terms with the days are over. And I kind of like feel them. I feel their soul. And that moves me. That, that I would say that's the answer. 
And do you have a, an event that, you know, we have a show about this, but do you have an event that's on your own bucket list that you would love to go? Yeah, I don't think it would be any of the normal ones. I, I've been very lucky, Giles, in my life that, you know, I, I lived the music sector and got into it in a closer way than than most people and, 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 and you know, meeting artists and seeing concerts and everything like that. And in football, the same. I have to say to everybody that, that thinks it's not that once you, once you're actually working in the industry, it's never really, really the same. What I would say is that it would need to be something that I haven't experienced yet. It's not that I've done everything. There's a lot of stuff I haven't done, but there's stuff that is close enough to what I've done that I wouldn't feel the need to break my back to go and see it. But I, I'd love to see something that I've not experienced culturally. So a really important cricket match between Pakistan and India. I'd, I'd really love to see that anywhere, really. And I would really love to see Boca Juniors and River Plate, you know, the Super Classico, their Argentinian football. And I'd love to see March Madness. Those would be the three that, that I think would be culturally extremely different from anything I've ever touched before. Yeah, really interesting ones, those, because they, as you say, take us, take you away from the cultural norm that you know and you'd be experiencing something, which is so much, I think, what sport is about, is you're experiencing culture, whether it's on a national level, regional, even very localised. We've been lucky enough to meet a few people along the way, sporting heroes. Is there anyone that you wish you'd met, maybe whether alive or dead, just someone who you felt moved you as a, as a sports person? I mean, a lot of people say Muhammad Ali clearly had an enormous impact on the world in the 20th century. Do you have anyone like that? You know, this is a very good question. And, you know, when you think about it, again, with the experience of having met a lot of, of what you would call famous hero type people in music and sport, a lot of them are, and this is a, a compliment, a lot of them are just normal people. So to answer that question, you have to think, who is somebody that's not normal that is going to like take you and challenge you or inspire you or something like that? Muhammad Ali obviously is one, but you know, you think, okay, let's say I'm sitting down at a table beside Muhammad Ali, you know, he, you know, in his prime and things like that. Would you be bothered to speak to me? Would you, you know, like, would there be an, an engagement? If there was, then yes, obviously everything that he did, Vietnam, the civil rights movement, huge, hugely interesting that one. The other one would be uh, Sebi Ballesteros, because, you know, I, I do think comes from a Mediterranean culture, relatively similar to my upbringing and, and that and was a poor lad, was Cadian, you know, nobody gave him a, 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 a leg up. He did it himself, then basically reinvented European golf, uh, reinvented the Ryder Cup, you know, a giant of charisma. And, you know, I think when you see his competitive streak as well and just, you know, everything he did, I think you could have a really good chat with him if you got him on the right day. So that would be one, I think, Giles. That would be pretty good. And God knows what he'd think about the current uh, challenges facing golf. But we've just done a show on that with Eddie, so we don't need to, to go down there. But keeping on golf, I know that you play a bit. You're probably challenging the, uh, the you know, maybe the next amateur title at Lake Como Golf Club. I don't know how the season went for you. But um, I know you do play golf and I know you love it. What would your dream team be, Rog? Who would you have? You can be the captain. You get three picks to to go out for a, a day's golf, who who would you have? Anybody? You know, I did I did have that scenario uh, when I was at the Scottish Premier League. We had a, a golf day, 
And uh, I, I picked, <laughs> I wasn't going to do any of this kind of like altruism thing. I just picked uh, Kenny Dalglish, Charlie Nicholas and Pat Nevin on my team. Um, <laughs> and wow. you know, that was, that was fun. But you know, to, the, what I would do here again, similar to the thing I said earlier about, you know, it's not just the person because if there's a person there and they don't interact, I don't think it's any fun. Uh, so, so you're looking for people that will make it a special, special day. So Everybody that has to play golf, obviously. So guess what? I, I would pick Donald Trump, you know, not because I'm a fan of Donald Trump, but I'd love to see his cheating up close. I just would love <laughs> to see that in action. Uh, the second one would be John Daly, for all the reasons everybody knows, from the, you know, the, the overly long swing to the, the alcohol to the doesn't give two hoots attitude. Uh, and the third one would probably be Michael Jordan, just for the competitiveness you know, I'd, I'd love to be exposed to that level of, you know, even for, I'd just be love to expose that and if maybe even for a couple of holes, just, you know, make them, you know, take one in the ribs. That would be lovely. That's not bad. Now, Rog, I've got a, this isn't a plug. I'm just fascinated. But you have, you, you're quite a, you're quite a Renaissance man. You do many different things and you've done many different things in your career, but you've just um, about to uh, publish a book, which I think is probably your first ever book and written that and it's been a, a huge part of your life and, and for Grant and I a real privilege to sort of watch you go through the the, the emotions of that now that it's about to hit the, the bookshelves and, and be available what's it been like not so much the book itself but the process of all of the things that are in your head that many of our listeners will know how on earth do you get that down on paper well, it's, it's a funny one because I was doing the book, uh, certainly 2023, at the same time I was doing the Sunday columns. There was two loads of creative output that, that I was trying to get out there. The book started, Giles, very much as a finance book, a finance textbook that I wanted to update and try and make it interesting and try and not just make it, you know, modern and bring it out with the examples of sport, but really to say this, this is what I believe, Finance isn't understood by people. You know, they don't understand how it really, really works. The famous Henry Ford quote about if everybody knew how the world of banking worked, there'd be a revolution in the morning. So there's a little bit of a kind of like Da Vinci Code thriller about what really happens in finance, how are decisions made, how people come up with valuations, forget the formula, you know, play the politics, all that. So I really wanted to try and I think in this theme that I've always had in these years is, is try and be honest with people and say, you know, this is what they may tell you, but this isn't what you'll, see, you'll hear at Harvard Business School type thing. When you're doing that and then you're thinking about the sports sector at the same time and it's it's got issues with its business model, with its generational change and everything like that, you have to put all this into the, the, the cooking pot and, and come out with some kind of form. And I found that quite hard young Etienne helped me and then Tobias Jones helped me and we came up with a book that you know still is very much that financial textbook almost a thriller a financial thriller but you know still takes through everything everybody would want to know who's who are the providers of capital what do they all want what will they expect how do you deal with them what language do they want to know how do they value things how does Silicon Valley work all of that kind of stuff always using the examples of our sector the last two chapters are Sports Perfect Storm, you know, everything that's, I think, going to challenge the sector going forward, laid out very, very clearly. And then the next chapter is a, a positive one to finish, which is, you know, how do we save this? How do we go back to the lifeboats? 
And I, I'm pleased with it. You know, I think... I, I think well, I can't it, tell you how many people have, have asked me personally either how to get it or what it's been like or can't wait to get it. So I, I'm, I'm excited. And just a quick question. When you've... It's a child, a book, right? I mean, this is something that you've conceived, that you've, you've gone through, you've gone through the highs and lows. What is it like when you get that cardboard box and maybe there are 50 copies of the book that arrive at home or whatever, or when you see the jacket? What does that feel like? Yeah, you know, I don't know. Very fun, it hasn't has it happened, happened yet? yet. It hasn't happened yet. You know, what, what we're trying to, you know, just be with Amazon and how it works and everything like that. Uh, some people have have got it on Amazon already. We weren't promoting Amazon because we wanted to check the author's copy and make sure it was you know to our standards. But some people, some people got a copy from Amazon and they've been posting me over the last couple of days saying, "I love this chapter. This looks good." And and, and they've got the book in their hand, and I haven't. <laughs> I have I haven't got the book in my hand. I haven't even got the limited edition yeah. in my hand. You know, so um, it's it's been a, a a bizarre experience. It's one, Giles, as I said in last week's article, I'm really glad I did, and other people should do it well. Breaking the inertia is extremely hard because you end up saying, "Will you no, do another I, one?" I don't, I don't think so. You know, like the in the Sunday columns, I developed this little mechanism with the three characters of the McKinsey Sports Practice, which is a little bit like a novella which, you know, when I can't think about something serious to write about in the Sunday column, I bring back, you know, uh, Stanley, Monique and George and just have a, a laugh. Uh, and I find that's quite funny because those write themselves a little bit. The dialogue just kind of flows. So there may be a novella one day, but um, I, I, I think after this book and after a, a, a good year 2023 of a lot of Sunday columns and the podcasts, I think people may be a wee bit fed up of my voice and you know maybe it's I'm not I'm not sure about that Rog but I do think that people will will love it and I can't wait to to look but best of luck with that because I know how much incredible amount of toil you put into into that um we come to the bit of the show now which is you probably know I call the captain's broadside where I ask you fairly daft questions and we can sail anywhere you like in the world where are we taking you well, again, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, places far and wide. I think the Mediterranean Sea, Europe Sea, is just an amazing place that in a lot of ways, especially for Anglo-Saxons and Brits, isn't well discovered. Two places that I, I would like to, to visit, and, and you could probably do them both on the same trip, is the island of Sardinia. And it's beautiful all around that island, but I particularly like the northeast uh, beside the Magdalena. Uh, some of the greatest sailing area in the world, some of the greatest sea. You know, I've been to the places you would expect, you know, uh, the Maldives and the Caribbean, the sea in Sardinia is a match for any of that. And then there's another little island just off uh, Ibiza called Formentera, which is, again, just the most beautiful sea, lovely sand. And people think, oh, I'm going to Spain for my holidays. They don't think Formentera or, you know, they go to Ibiza and have a really good rocking time. So if you could take me to both or either of those places, I'm I'm as happy as Larry. Now nah, we're going to take you to both. We want to extend this trip. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And obviously, as my guest, and obviously um, for the first night, you get to choose the uh, the first night um, of the big feed, the three course dinner. And don't worry about the cheese course. That is always standard. That's not a course. That's just uh, that's essential. What is the Roger Mitchell three course dinner? 
let me take a step back on this one a little bit to tell you a little a little story about you learn things in life. Like I said, I came from Scotland, and even though my my my, my mother was Italian, she'd lived in Scotland all her life, so she was a Scottish Italian rather than an Italian Italian. So when I moved to Price Waterhouse when I was very young, twenty, and uh, went to Italy. And, you know, you start traveling as an auditor. And one of the jobs we had was in, in Sicily, uh, or a construction company in Sicily. Try and audit that one. See how that goes. And, and in fact, that's quite <laughs> circular because that's the real world of finance. Don't give me all your spreadsheets when you're dealing with a guy that's got a very long pinky nail. You know, it just, you know, that's welcome to the NFL moments. And then obviously during the night, you're away from home, you go to nice restaurants. And this lovely place in Augusto, which is, you know, it's not that far from Syracuse, not that far from Taormina, you know, the White Lotus episode. Yeah. yeah. So we're in that yeah. part of the world. And, uh, you know, there's this restaurant that's really carved into the, the, the cave overlooking the cliff. Just an amazing place. You know, you go in there and there's a really huge aquarium of live fish, a big one, you know, it's got a big turtle in there, you know, and, and, and they're basically saying, well, what would you like to choose? And you go in there and... Um, you look at the menu, and I remember I ch- I chose something, I don't know, a meat starter and then a fish second course. And the, and the waiter said to me, what wine would you like? And I said, well, what do you recommend? And he says, look, at this point, sir, I have no fucking clue. You know, like, it, so <laughs> the, point, the point being that I had chosen very badly in the match of the stuff. And, you know, that was... <laughs> You know, and, and so the waiter obviously let me know very quickly that I needed to up my game, which I did need to up that game later that evening uh, and over a, a wonderful meal overlooking the sea. We saw a real kerfuffle down there with a lot of boats with blue kind of like uh, lamps flashing, police boats and everything like that. And I said, what's going on? What's going on? And this waiter said, well, those are the smugglers. They'll have caught the smugglers. Uh, and I said, what smugglers? Oh, it's just cigarettes. And I say, well, good news, no? And he says, well, every so often we have to throw a few small fish to the police so they feel um, <laughs> so they feel that they're doing well. Of course, it changes nothing. And there again, you know, another huge learning. You know that you know that's the reality of life. Sometimes, you know, you need to lose the small battles to to, to win the big ones. So, to come back to your question, I think if we're on a boat, we have to stay with uh, a fish a fish combination. One of the the starters I like a great deal that's actually become quite popular in Italy now is grilled octopus and mashed potatoes. I think if that's done really well, it's a lovely starter. I'd like to follow that with uh, a fish that I think is underrated, you know, uh, sea bream. You know, it's called orata in Italian. Sea bream, I think, is an extremely tasty fish. Uh, so something like that, or sole, something very nice and simple. No sauces, you know, that's the difference for people that don't know between French cuisine and Italian cuisine. French use a lot of butter and it's all very much sauce-led. Italians, it's all about, you know, natural goods, fresh materials, very little olive oil-based. So those kind of two things there, Nice and simple, nothing fancy. And then I would finish it off with a simple, again, I think very underrated dessert, which is a, a slice of pineapple, which goes perfectly for a pirate ship. And, um, you know, they do say that pineapple is actually naturally um, getting away the, the fats that you've eaten during the meal. So it's a, actually a, a digestive thing as well. So that would be my, th- my three courses, Giles. 
octopus, sea bream and pineapple coming up. I will tell the chef uh, to get going. And you might want to freshen up. You've probably had a long day there in Lake Como. We give you a, an ensuite shower in the main cabin. So lucky you. Um, what song does Roger Mitchell sing in the shower when getting ready for a nice, uh, a fine dining? I've, I've never really been a singer in the shower. Um, again, coming back to the music industry, I would say that there's no one thing here. Music and its choices, whether it's a driving song or, or what's on the radio on your shower, is 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 of the moment and of the mood. Uh, however, Do you have a good what, voice? Do I you have a good voice? I don't really. Do you know? Uh, no, not really. I, 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 but one song I would say that I, 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 it's never failed to lift my spirits over the 50 years almost that it's been out. Uh, and it, you probably, you know, will be surprised in this, but it's a Sugar Baby Love of by the Rubettes. Uh, people that know it, the, the intro, the start with the falsetto, and he comes in and it's just a super up-tempo, set, uh, you know, uh, uplifting song. Uh, so I would have a go at that if it came on the radio or in the car, I would sing along to that. I'll warn the crew just so they know what's what's going on. Tell me, Rog, what was your first car? Do you remember that? I do. Uh, it was a second-hand uh, Triumph Acclaim that my father helped me pick. Uh, I was about three years old. Fine, you know, like I was, what, just after I passed my test, 17, and I, I used that to go to uni every day, and it was it was fine. And, and then, did you uh, love it? no. No, not really. I mean, I've probably come across as somebody that doesn't love a lot of stuff, but um, it was functional. I, I liked a lot more the second car I got, which was when I started working, I got one of those kind of like souped-up Ford Fiestas that were going around in those days, what they called XR2s, yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. That was new, and I liked that. Um, the, mm. the Triumph was, you know, the entry model into the market. <laughs> I couldn't care less about it. It was your first house. It was your first house, not your yeah. second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was your first ever live gig that you went to? I think it was David Bowie's Serious Moonlight Tour in, in, in Murrayfield. You know, that would have been, what, wow. 82, 83. So I would have been 18 or 19. So I wasn't, you know, going to gigs at 12, 13, 14, like some people were doing relatively late. But I remember that was, we, we, went, we went through to Edinburgh for, for that, that. Obviously, David Bowie is very important. But it was, you know, in that, that moment of Let's Dance and China Girl and the, and the blonde hair, it was it was really interesting. You grew up in the uh, in the seventies. Obviously, you'd have had a vinyl collection. Thirty threes would have been your thing. Do you have one album that, if uh, if it was going to everything was going to be sunk into the sea, is there one album that you would keep for all time? Well, you know, you look back to the first ones that you bought, and everybody, Giles, I think everybody of my generation probably get into music in a, a relatively similar way. So I remember early on getting the Red Album and the Blue Album of the Beatles, which are basically the compilation albums, and being absolutely blown away at that. I remember buying early on uh, Ziggy Stardust uh, from David Bowie. I think that would have come out 72 or 73. I remember Dark Side of the Moon, which for many, many reasons, just one of the very, very important ones. I don't know whether Dark Side of the Moon is overrated. It's become something of a bit of a cult thing beyond its musical value. I don't know, but, you know, everybody had that. Obviously, Bat Out of Hell was, 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 came out around those years for me, which was an important album. 
And another band well, certainly is... the era the era of those album covers as well, just the artwork yeah. on so many album covers yeah. was was something well as, said. as much about the music, I would have thought. Well said. That's ELO been lost a bit, I think. It has, it yeah. has, it has. ELO, uh, very, very underrated Birmingham band, Jeff Lynne, you know, that album, you know, what's it called, Out of the Blue. Uh, uh, again, that's one of the songs in the shower, I think, now that I think about it, Mr. Blue Sky. Very difficult to not be uplifted when that song comes on the radio. And then that takes you right up to, you know, the start of punk in 77, never mind the bollocks, Six Pistols. Um, did you so, enjoy, did you enjoy punk? Did you enjoy, no, did no. you enjoy the Pistols? No, no, not, not, not really. You know, I like post-punk enormously. It's a little bit like the stadium thing, like I said earlier. The idea of a lot of people congregating in some kind of mob-esque way and losing their head irrationally has never really appealed to me, Giles. So the idea of going to a gig of Sham 69 and pogoing up and down and spitting on each other, <laughs> no matter how cool it was of the moment, never really, really did it for me. You know, no, so I can't say it. I can't say it. Yeah. So what was the question? Which what, which one would you have if you didn't? Uh, yeah, what, I, what album I, would you save? I, you know, I, I don't know. If, if you're in a desert island, then you're going to have moments of difficulty. You're going to have moments where, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So I, I, I think it may be something a little bit more classical, a little bit more, you know, uh, hymns, you know, Bocelli, Ave Maria, that kind of stuff, you know, just to basically, well, if I'm not going to get off here, this is the last stuff I want to hear before I go. Uh, it may be in that direction, which sounds a little bit strange, but that may be it. Well, no, fair enough. And, Rog, this is a pirate ship. We're going to sail down to Sardinia very shortly. But obviously um, pirate ships are designed to smuggle and we've got a very fine smuggle hold here. We can put a lot of stuff in there. But if we had to save one treasured possession for you and we could then take it and bury it on the sands, on the Sardinian sands, to keep it safe for all time, is there? Are you? do you have that sort of sense of sentimentality or, or not really? And if there is, what would it be? I've heard a couple of other people like Lord Cole with the stopwatch, and that was an amazing highlight of, of, of a previous captain's table. And I'm desperately thinking of something that, that rivals that, but I honestly can't think of it. You know, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit like, you know, Robert De Niro in Heat. If you have got stuff that you can't walk away with in 30 seconds when the heat comes on, then obviously people aside. So, you know, is there anything that I'd, there's obviously pieces of jewellery or photos or watches that, you know, you would be unhappy to lose, but would it be such that I would need to send? Not really. You know, like as long as the people are around, you know, just get the people out of the burning house, the rest you can buy again. Yeah, I think well said. I, I feel the same. And it's very interesting when people, it kind of divides opinion on that way. Rog, I'm very aware of the time. We've got to get ready for, uh, for our slap up dinner and uh, you've got to go and have a shower and sing some, sing your, your song or two. So one, I've been longing to have you on the show. I think because of the amount of time that we spend, as I said at the top of the show, with people who probably feel they know you a bit because we spend time with people through our podcast. But I think just to share a little bit about the real you, who I've had the privilege of knowing, it's just been such a joy. So firstly, thank you for coming on board the Reeve Gauche and to the Captain's Sable. It's been a joy for me. Well, I mean, Giles, I would, I would, I would say, you know, on the theme that, you know, I don't deserve to be on this show compared to the other guests. So um, I feel a little bit as if I'm cheating people because I don't have an awful lot to say that's 
particularly profound. All, all, all I would say is, is something that I do feel is part of me and not many people know me very well if they just hear the podcast or everything like that. You know, the, you're one of the people that do. Uh, one, of, one of the things I would say is that, um, and I think this is quite interesting, my value set uh, is very much around the humility of being somebody just not particularly important. Blessed are the meek, if I could put a label on that. However, Giles, I've found that life does not reward people like that. Life rewards people with confidence. That's true in a business meeting. It's true if you're out socialising and meeting the opposite sex and things like that. Confidence uh, scores very, very highly. So you need to project it even if you're not feeling it inside. And then confidence is a next door neighbour to arrogance. I would say this, that when you have been, as I have, in charge of a football league where you are going to get a kicking by the media and the media was when the media was the tabloid media in the old days, not like today. If you don't put on a shell that can only come from self-belief that is a close cousin of arrogance, you're going to die. So I would say that if anybody is interested in, you know, having the context about this book that I've written or the podcast I say, or sometimes if I feel if it feels as if I'm too sure of myself, it's all an internal battle because, you know, default position is the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. But the reality that if you want to uh, do things in life and raise a family and look after your kids, you better get your game face on, you better get your armor on. And the best way to do that is to bring a little bit of arrogance. And I find that at nearly 60 years old, incredibly interesting and very difficult to manage. I hope that's helpful because anybody that's got an idea of who they think I am, they should let me know because I don't know who I am. You know, it goes from one side of the spectrum and back every single day. Well, Roger, I think what you should know is that, and with the, the many listeners that we have, is that um, the amount of respect you have in, in our industry uh, is significant. And I suspect you'll find that sales of the book are going to be high. People will want to know more. I think we've, and you in particular, have raised the issue of what is going on in this sports industry. And I think your your book is going to be a very helpful guide, or at least a primer, just a handbook to help people try and figure out what's next. So I think we're all looking forward to it. Rog, Thank we've you. run out of time. Thank you. To all of our listeners, I'm, I'm going to get this all the wrong way around because normally Grant does it. But uh, to all our listeners, thank you very much for the shows that we make. Obviously, we have many that, that Rog, we have Goal on Goal, we have The Grounds, and we have The Bucket List. Please do review us. It makes a difference to us. We do need to to know what people are thinking. We get a lot of private messages, but do review us um, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on, on Twitter. That's at EntertainR. And you can follow Roger at... <laughs> at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. Rog, thank you so much no, thank uh, for you, coming Giles. on board. And I and I think this may be one of our, our last shows, if not the last show of the year. So it is probably worth it saying is. a happy Christmas and uh, whatever at this time of year it is, whatever your religion, whatever your yeah. point of view. Happy I hope holidays, you have a very happy Hanukkah, holiday. everything. Just try and treat people a little bit better. Blessed are the meek. Take care, everybody. And thank you, Giles. Lovely to see you, Roger. Bye-bye. Lovely. Thanks.